You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Let's read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and good morning. <laughs> Thank you, small voices. <laughs> oh, man. Detours might not be small things, depending on which way you were coming. <laughs> I found three options in places that I couldn't go where I was supposed to go. I think I saw Woodbury, Minnesota, but I'm not sure. As we just read this morning, we're going to be looking at oaths today and specifically what Jesus says about them. Um, I tried to go through and kind of make a list of some that we might use often and not really think about. Hopefully they're some of them are a little bit lighthearted, although I think a couple of them underneath might be a little bit dark. I'm not sure. But I just wanted to start us thinking about this topic and possibly reference them later. As we go there, if you wouldn't mind, let's pray again. Lord, even as we mentioned already, with detours and, and speakers not working and all sorts of things, there are distractions today, things that would keep our minds unfocused. And I just pray that you would help me to focus on the truth of your word, to communicate clearly the things that you've allowed me to to look at. And God, that our hearts would be uh, transformed by the truth of your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How about this one? Familiar with this one? Cross my heart and... That's a little dark. But the point is, I, I am so strongly affirming what I say that I'm willing to die for it. That's the point. Um, how about this one? Pinky promise. Absolutely. Another dark one. If I don't complete what we're agreeing to right now, you may break my finger as a punishment for not keeping what you've ask me to do. We've all heard, oh, I swear to God, right? We probably use that. How about I swear on my mother's grave? That's serious, right? Um, All for one swears by the moon and the stars in the sky. That was a song joke. One person, two, okay, don't laugh. (laughs) Here's one. Little pig, little pig, let me come in. 
not by the hair on my chinny chin chin. I'm dead serious. Now, it doesn't look like an oath maybe, but you're saying if this is not true, I should be dead. As we continue into this next section in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I think there are three concepts that we need to keep in mind, which I think are central to our understanding what Jesus is saying, and we'll be laying those concepts out as we go. I also want to spend some time looking at the, the couplet structure that Jesus used in this section this section of teaching to help us better understand what he's saying about who he is and how radical following him is. Uh, I'm a design freak. Once upon a time, I thought I wanted to be an engineer. And good design still fascinates me. And it, it doesn't matter what it is. I love to look at houses and see how they're laid out and how they fit together. Does the flow make sense? Is there enough space? Um, I love to look at guitars. I did this Friday. I've been reading about a guitar that has some radical design changes from normal, and I went to look at it and play it, and to Layla's comfort, I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> but it was fascinating. Uh, I have one that I did buy. I, I saw it in a magazine first. It's called the Traveler Guitar. It fits in a case about this big, and it looks like you're carrying a breakdown shotgun. It's not. And I looked at it, I went, that looks really weird. And then I started reading about it, and I went, that makes a lot of sense. And then I was in the music store one day, and there was one on the wall. And I went, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and then I played it, and I went, it does everything they said it does. All of the purposes and designs were, were there for somebody who needs to be able to play an unamplified instrument in very limited space. And it's like, that is a really cool design. Um, I, I, I geek out over Fibonacci sequences in art and music and how structure and form go together to make things beautiful. And, and so we're going to be doing some of that. I'll just apologize now if it's not your cup of tea, but we'll get there. Um, because structure and form happen here, and I think it informs the passage. So we're going to start reviewing. If you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look first at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is a, a significant statement in, the, in what follows. Because Jesus is saying he's going to make complete the demands of the law. He is going to satisfy them. He is going to execute them in the sense of completely doing them, like executing an order. So everything that God is asking and showing and revealing about his character has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ, which takes us to concept one. And it is in Jesus we find the completion, the satisfaction, the execution of all that God demands in the law. That's important as we look at these couplets that follow and as we've been looking at the, the sections on anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation. Uh, it makes them all fit. The second thing we get to is Matthew 5.20. And this to me 
Sean and I were talking about this, is I believe the center, in, in all passages there's a key center, and I think this verse is the key center for making all of these things fit together. And Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's big, because the scribes and Pharisees had added a multitude of requirements to the Mosaic law. To clarify the law, to show their righteousness, which was really self-righteousness, and even to create loopholes to give them ways to get around the demands of the law. They had the Torah, which was the written law that had been given to them by Moses. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments. That's kind of where we're paralleling right now. But it also includes all of the regulations found in Leviticus and Numbers. And there's pretty general agreement that there are 613 commands. That's a lot. I can't memorize the Ten Commandments. I know I don't know all of the 613. But in addition to the Torah, they had the Mishnah, which was the oral traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they had added to those 613 commandments. They had embellished them. Uh, it was their clarifications. Here's an example. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Pretty simple. They had added 39 clarifications to that. 39 clauses to make that make more sense for, for that one day and that one commandment. So if we use that as an average for the 613 commandments that God had given, you end up with about 12,000 laws. That is unattainable by anybody's imagination. And these oral traditions were often considered to be as important, if not more so, than the Torah. They place more emphasis on the execution of those, those guidelines that they had added. Uh, it reminds me of the United States Federal Register. I used to work in a factory that made mobile home trusses. And my job was to test them. And I did that by applying a lot of pressure and watching them break and making sure that they were within the right tolerances. Well, the Federal Register for... Construction had hundreds of pages. And of those hundreds of pages, to do my job and to correctly test these trusses, I used a paragraph. There was one paragraph that directly applied to that process. I had to read all of those things to find it. And that's what the Jews were doing here. Their focus was on the outward observation and demonstration of these written and oral traditions. Their focus was all about doing. Works-based righteousness. They were doing it to be noticed by others. Uh, we see that as it talks about praying. When you're praying, don't do it in public. Do it in private. We see that in giving. You see this poor woman? You go around ringing bells and drawing attention to all that you're doing, and she just gave what she had. That's the picture of the difference of the two. And in this verse, I see concept two. In Jesus, 
we have a higher standard than external righteousness. That ties directly to the fact that Jesus wasn't sent to do away with the law. He was sent to fulfill it. So that brings up a question. How can our righteousness exceed that of the people who are willing to add hundreds or thousands of clarifications and additions to the hundreds of laws that God had already given them? How are we going to exceed the hyper-excessive? Well, I believe that that's what Jesus begins to teach us about in these six couplets found in verses 21 to 48. Righteousness comes from the inside, not the outside. But it's beyond our ability to produce in our own strength. While it's not directly stated in this passage, I believe this is at the heart of what Jesus is trying to show the people as, as we continue to work through chapter 5. And so here's how the couplets are set up. The first part says, You have heard it said to those of old, or to the ancients, or it was originally said. And then Jesus says, But I say to you. So that's the structure thing that was fascinating me. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you. That contrast is really important. He's showing us how radically different the kingdom of heaven would be than what they were experiencing in their attempts to keep the law. And as I thought about these six contrasts, I kind of looked at them, the anger, the lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. First place my mind went was the Ten Commandments. First four of the commandments are related between us and God, and the next six go sideways between us in interpersonal relationships. And I thought, six related to people, six sections here, you've heard it said, and I, I was excited about that, so I started tracking that down, and I wanted to see how is Jesus going to fulfill each of those six commandments. Well, my theory was wrong. It didn't work. Only three of these six parts of chapter 5 are directly found in the Ten Commandments. Verses 21 to 26 are commandment number 6, thou shalt not murder. 27 to 30 are commandment 7, you shall not commit adultery. And the passage we're in today about oaths, verses 33 to 37, are actually commandments 3 and 9. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But there was something related to that idea that does carry through. In verses 21 and 27 and 33, there's an additional phrase, if you'll look. It says at the end, you have heard it was said to those of old. So that phrase, to those of old, is unique in those three verses. Now, if you're reading, you're going to say, wait a minute, Rob, 27 doesn't have that. Go look. It's in the Greek text, but it was left out here, and I don't have a good explanation why. I, I wish I could tell you that. Because for me, it made it a little more confusing because those three are the ones that are directly related to a commandment. And because they're related to a commandment, they're related to both the written and the oral tradition. So these are, as they're talking about the 
to those of old, they're tracing it back to the, ten, the commandments that God gave to Moses. That is important. So there is a correlation, and they directly relate back to the commands and the oral traditions. And like I said a second ago, this passage, the passage on oaths, actually doubles down and deals with two of them, not just one. So it's even more weighty, if you will, than the others. It has more impact. Jesus is saying, you live your lives seeking to be righteous by the meticulous observation of the Torah and the Mishnah, the oral and written traditions. But I'm telling you, based on my authority as God, as God that there is more to eternal life, to kingdom life, than external observance. So in these, Jesus is showing that he completely satisfies what God intended in the Mosaic Law and what the Pharisees expanded in the oral traditions by going beyond our actions to reveal and address our hearts. And that is what sets up concept three. In Jesus, we're made able to be truly righteous. Not in the things we do, but in what Jesus makes us. So, let's get to the passage, and we're going to use the three concepts. In Jesus, we find the completion, satisfaction, execution of all that God demands in the law. In Jesus, we have a higher standard than external righteousness. And in Jesus, we are made able to be truly righteous. And then the couplets. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you to, to better understand what Jesus is saying here. So let's look at, at our passage again today, starting in verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that it, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Make sure I didn't jump something here. So, here's the contrast. Jesus starts with, you have heard that it was said to those of old, and he goes to the written and oral traditions. And what Je Jesus literally says when he says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, it's an absolute ne negative. Absolutely do not commit perjury. Absolutely do not commit perjury by willfully telling an untruth after having taken an oath that you're going to do this thing. Don't commit perjury, but do what you've promised. Easy on the surface, right? So, if this was said to those of old, where do we find it? Well, first we see it in the two commandments that we talked about. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
misusing God's name in any way bears a penalty. And in Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, that lying when you promise to tell the truth has a penalty. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, we read, You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord, the name of your God. I am the Lord. Don't swear falsely by my name. Don't use my name to say something that you don't intend to do. Don't use me as your pigeon. Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If you take a vow, don't violate it, complete it. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Not only be sure to do it, but don't delay in doing it. Make it happen in the time that you've agreed. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. These teachings from the Old Testament make it clear that God takes his name very, very seriously. And our vows based on it should be taken very, very seriously. So here's the contrast. Jesus says in verse 33, do not take any vow at all. I'm sorry, that's in verse 34. That's quite a contrast. So before we address the rest of the passage, I think we need to take just a second considering oaths. What are they? What is being talked about? So an oath is a solemn promise. It often invokes a divine witness, for example, God, or something with the character or nature of being holy or sacred, like a city, a holy city, Jerusalem, Mecca depending on who it is, or like a holy structure, the temple, the church, whatever you pick, fill in the blanks for those, something that is associated with holiness about our actions. Now, we knew those earlier mild oaths that we looked at, but how many of us have taken oaths as we think about this passage? How many of you have had to testify in court I'm glad it's a small number. (laughs) I'm guessing, if it's what is normal, you were asked to place your hand on a Bible and swear and conclude with, so help me God, right? How many of you were Boy Scouts or are Boy Scouts? 
on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. That's an oath. How many of you have been, yes, all of us have been in school. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. It's an oath. Those of us who are married, those promises we made, it starts out, today we gather where? In the sight of God and these witnesses. We are calling God to attest to the truthfulness and honesty and stability of what we're doing, and we're using him as a reference point. Uh, This one was weighty for me. Uh, You were here with me when I made a promise as an elder of this church to faithfully shepherd and teach the word. Uh, Those of of us who are church members made a promise. It does add weight. It adds seriousness. It reminds us of how significant these things are. Well, are those the oaths that Jesus is addressing here? Is that what he's talking about? Is he saying that those oaths are wrong? Let's look at the rest of the passage, verses 34 to 36. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black or come back. That's not in there. That's an addition. (laughs) Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. There is a problem if Jesus is saying that we should never take an oath. Uh, Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, please? Verse 23. As Paul is addressing the Corinthians, he says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Paul is putting himself under an oath in God's presence, affirming the reason that he didn't come back. He's taking an oath that what he's saying is true, that it was for their benefit, not because he didn't want to be there. Uh, in Galatians 1.20, again confirming what he was writing to the Galatians, Paul says, In what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. So again, we have Paul taking an oath that he is telling the truth. He is accurately representing what he is, is there for. I don't think Paul would do something that contradicted Christ's teachings. His whole point and purpose in his life was to see Christ lifted up and exalted. You wouldn't contradict. So, that creates a challenge for us as we look at Jesus saying, do not take an oath at all. Turn further in Matthew to chapter 26, please. Verses 63 and 64. This is when Jesus is on trial before the high priest. And they've been 
questioning him. They're trying to find guilt in him. In verse 63, it says, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I beg you, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest puts Jesus under oath. Previously, Jesus has not said anything. He could have continued not to say anything. But he chose to respond. Jesus, under oath, responded to the high priest. That's important. Because Jesus is not able to contradict his own teachings by his very nature. So, the words of Jesus and Paul would indicate, and and many commentators agree with this, that Jesus did not forbid taking an oath in this passage, such as when we take an oath in a court of law. So what's he teaching? (laughs) Because it pretty clearly says, let me get back to chapter 5, do not take an oath at all. What's he saying? Well, we need to go back to verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the Pharisees added all of these requirements to demonstrate their righteousness. They wanted others to see how righteous they were by their practices. They wanted to create loopholes to get around God's standards in the law. There's a a really good example of this in Mark chapter 7. It's the only reference to this. It's what's known as the law of Corbin. And it was interesting. Um, We were just visiting Layla's folks. Her dad is Syrian. He speaks Arabic. And as I was talking to him, we actually ended up talking about this passage. And as I was mentioning Corbin and what was done with it, which we'll look at in just a second, he recognized the word. There's a parallel in in, in Arabic the idea of something being taken and set aside for holy service. I thought that was really interesting. It, it, God took this and used it as an opportunity to, to speak truth to my father-in-law, which is those narrow openings are very narrow and infrequent, and I was really grateful for that. Mark chapter 7, verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. In the Ten Commandments, the Jews are called to honor their parents. Part of honoring your parents is caring for them when they're older getting to the point where I'm starting to remind my kids of that. If for whatever reason, though, the child chose not to do this, they could legitimize their neglect. They could make it okay, legally okay, by declaring their money Corbin. Sorry, I can't help you. My money is set aside as a gift to God. 
and so I can't use it to buy you groceries. Now, here's the loophole. You didn't actually have to give it. You just had to declare that you were going to give it. And so it was still sitting there, and your parents were still neglected. They were violating the commandment to honor the tradition. And the oath of Corban was given higher precedence than the command of God. This is the place that the Pharisees had gotten to in their thinking. How else does this apply? What else was going on? William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary notes that the Jews sought to avoid failure to show honesty or character, to avoid doing that by swearing God's name, by substituting heaven or earth or Jerusalem or their own heads as that by which they swore. If I swear by God, I'm bound. No escape route. But if I swear by Jerusalem, which technically is God's but not God, then it's okay. Or if I swear by the temple, which is holy because it's in Jerusalem and it's the place of God's presence, but it's not really God, it's okay. Or I swear by the hair on my head. All of these things are outside your control. How can you use them to verify the truth of what you're doing? They were creating loopholes to be able to justify their unjust actions. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary says that the Jews used their ingenuity to classify various oaths and generally discounted those that did not mention God specifically. Right? Bible Knowledge Commentary says that the Pharisees were notorious for their oaths, which were made on the least provocation. The second somebody called what they were saying into question as to whether or not it was true, out come the oaths. I swear by blah, 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 that this is indeed. How dare you question me was the heart of what they were saying. So in order to either avoid the chance of not fulfilling a promise made before God or because they never intended to keep the promises in the first place, the Jews began to swear by objects that were related to God but weren't directly God. And tied to that, the idea was your promise was as good or lasting as the thing that you were swearing by. So if you were swearing by that mountain, as long as that mountain was standing, you were good. As long as God existed, if you swore by God, your promise was solid. The bigger the oath, the better. We've heard kids do that, one-upping each other on how true what they're saying is. Right? We've probably done that too. And tied to this, if they wanted to be relieved of their oath, if they wanted to get out of the promise that they had made, either by heaven or earth or by Jerusalem or by their head, they could argue that, well, it wasn't made 
based upon God himself. God hadn't been involved, so therefore the, the oath is not binding. I don't have to keep my promise. It's not really what I meant, and I can't swear by that anyway, so it's not valid. So I don't have to do what I said I would do. It allowed them to make allowances for their mental reservations. I mean, think about it. Somebody asks you to do something, right? What's your first response usually? I promise. And then you start to think about the significance of what needs to be done. The time it's going to take, the money it's going to cost you, whatever. And you go, oh, I was a little hasty in that promise. I should have thought that through better. So we see Jesus calling the Pharisees out for their hypocrisy in this passage. He is saying that it is wrong to make a promise based on something over which you have no control and which you have no intention of keeping. That's what Jesus forbids. Promising by things over which you have no control and promises that you have no intention of keeping. Don't do that. Don't lie to people. Be honest, completely honest in what you say. We see concept two at work. In Jesus, we have a higher standard than external righteousness. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's aiming for their hearts. Not their actions, their hearts. And he's aiming for our heart too. He's showing us that our actions aren't enough. It's interesting. The actions of a sinful heart can look quite good at times. It's kind of hard to tell the difference. Those loopholes and allowances that they were making bring us to verse 37, and it reveals our selfish hearts. Jesus says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Matthew Henry says, All oaths taken without necessity or in common conversation must be sinful. William MacDonald writes that to use stronger language than yes or no is to admit that Satan rules our lives. The Bible Knowledge Commentary states that the fact that oaths were used at all emphasizes the wickedness of man's heart. And I think the Wycliffe Bible Commentary puts it especially well. By adding words to our statements, we either admit that our usual speech can't be trusted or else we lower ourselves to the level of a lying world that follows the evil one. Don't think that's what Christ intended. That's not why he died on the cross to allow us to lower ourselves to the level of a lying world. I grew up in Nevada. Cowboys all over the place. And I remember seeing and hearing something. Men would be discussing something that needed to be done. And one would say, I'll be there Tuesday at 7. 
the deal was done. He was there. It was a contract without formalization. The other thing, when it was formalized, it was like this. That, where I grew up in that day and age, was a legally binding contract. I said, I'll do it. Here's my hand. You don't have to worry about it. That's getting to the heart of what Jesus was saying. Now, I know that they were fallible men, and I know that there were promises broken, but I understood the principle that was underneath that. Jesus didn't die so that we could find loopholes and exceptions to avoid responsibility and to avoid transformation. He came to give us life. He came to change us. He came to make us new. So because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, we don't need to add any more. We can't claim a higher authority than him. And if his authority says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that's exactly what should happen. Our yes and no should come from a truthful heart, and it's enough. We don't need to try to convince people of the truthfulness of what we're saying because truth is what's embedded in our hearts. Concept two, in Jesus, we have a higher standard than external righteousness. We have new life in him, and that new life is different than our old life. And concept three, in Jesus, we are made able to be truly righteousness because he completes the law fulfills all of its demands, he's able to empower us to accomplish his will. So what's Jesus saying here? We know because he and Paul put themselves under oaths that it's not the oath itself. I think it is the empty use of oaths and the exaggeration of oaths that are the problem. Don't embellish what you say. Don't try to strengthen the truth of what you're, you're telling. Don't try to look good. Don't try to save face. Be honest in all you say or do. And, and if we're honest, we know we're not going to accomplish that in our strength. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's done in Christ's strength. So it brings us to some questions. How are we being less than honest? I can't answer that. I can just ask the question because that's what God was poking at me. How are you being less than honest? How are we being false at heart? What do we need to yield to him to be pure in heart? Is there something that we need to let go of so that he can accomplish his will and his purposes? Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.